So I theorize that there must be a part of the brain that is able to select the specific range of time and space. And I could call that the selector mechanism. Welcome back. I'm here with Edward Reardon. Edward, welcome, my friend. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. So for those who have been living under a rock for the past decade, Edward Reardon is a famous remote viewer who has had a lot of, let's just say, interesting hits on things that have subsequently happened. So let's just get started with how you got into this whole thing. How did you discover remote viewing? How did you learn it? And then what have you used it for over these years? Well, it's a long story. The interest in paranormal, psychic, or metaphysical things goes back when I was a kid. My mother was interested in those things. So her interest, all the movies that we watched, you know, back in the 1970s were all based around those things. So my interest always continued to grow in those areas. The thing that struck me the most, it still sticks with me to this day, was an old Barbara Streisand movie we watched. And her character knew when somebody was going to call. So she would always know when the phone was going to ring. And as a kid watching that, I was fascinated by that scene. And I, I wanted to do that. How did she do that? I, I want to do that. Whatever space that represented, I want to go into that space. And so that continued on. In 1995, there was a documentary that was shown on like the Discovery Channel. Mm -hmm. And it was a series that they were doing called the Spy in the Sky series. And it was Monday through Friday. And each night they had some strange uh, thing that the government and the military were doing to spy on their enemies or whatever. So it could be strange satellite stuff on Monday or whatever. But on Wednesday, it was remote viewing. So when I saw the commercial, I was like, oh, my God, I, I have to. So I recorded it on my VHS, you know, 1995, and I watched it 100 times. And it had all these amazing people on there, Ingo Swan and Mel Riley and Lynn Buchanan. It was fascinating. I was really intrigued. And then the guy who made it said he was going to put out a book the following year and all that kind of stuff. So getting access to anything remote viewing related back in those days was very difficult. Uh, mm -hmm. in the later 90s. If you didn't know where to go and what little chat groups to join, which I had no idea, you would really find very little access to anything related to remote viewing other than Art Bell show with an Ed Dames interview or something like that. And so it was very difficult for us in those early days. But a friend of mine had acquired the Ed Dames VHS training module that he was selling back in 1998, 1999. And I took those from him and I, I watched them over and over again. And I began to practice and practice and practice on my own. And I did that for about two years with no feedback other than right. really, you know, I mean, just you, it's hard to imagine today what it was like back then, because today you have this. Mm -hmm. You have YouTube full of videos, you got free training, you got everybody's talking. 
But back then, it was the Wild West. You had nothing, well, really. Well, you have no validation that what this cassette tape is even works, or if Ed Dames is even real. If I mean, it was on coast to coast, but you don't know if you're even if it's even working, right? Because there's nobody to tell you that this is how well, it feels when you get something right. This is what you see in your mind's eye. This is no, like you can't ask actually, those questions. And actually it was quite the opposite because Dames is of the opinion that you don't feel anything. Remote viewing is not an experience. So I, I had to unlearn all of that stuff on my own. Because again, you just, unless you had a lot of money, you were on your own, man. And so the, even the targets that I had at that time, I, I would have a friend of mine that, that I worked with. I said, Hey, I'm doing this thing. Can you set up some targets? And they were just written. He would write them on a piece of paper, you know, Lake Michigan or Eiffel Tower. I mean, they're not even photographs or anything. Very crude, man. Very crude beginning. But then after a few years, I did go to L.A. I did get into a training weekend workshop with Ed Dames and, and his training partner at the time, F.M. Bonsall, and got a little bit of training and then met some people as well. So the people in the training group, a couple of them were pretty cool and we were motivated. And so we did keep in touch, which helped to keep us going. But everybody kind of drops off, you know, one or two people may keep the interest, but it's, you know, it's really difficult to maintain something because remote viewing is one of the most difficult things you can do. And if you can't handle the learning curves, which are many, you just ain't going to make it. You know, it's it's brutal. It's a brutal thing to be wrong so many times in a row. <laughs> you know what I mean? You want some kind of payoff. And, and uh, you, should, you should try submitting short fiction. But sorry, well, keep going. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It, it's tough. So for the majority of the 2000s, I did work with a couple people in a group. But mostly it was all solo viewing, all practice. Basically what happened was I got to the point by about... 2005 or so, 2006, but I wasn't going to work any projects anymore because I just didn't feel that I was good enough. And I didn't feel that anybody that I was associated with were good enough either. And that we really had no business putting anything out because we just weren't good enough. My standard was going higher, not lower, unless we were doing UFO targets where any dumbass just fake that over and over again. But I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I just committed to validation targets for years, hammering it out just one after another over and over and by myself, because I knew that the only way that I'm going to get to something that is real, where I'm going to feel satisfied is going to be through hammering this thing out with validation targets over and over and over again. And that's what I did. And I was living in Arizona at the time. And I swear I was the only remote viewer in that state. And I mean, there was just nobody. <laughs> it was like nobody. But I moved here to Austin, Texas in 2011. And I immediately started up the Austin Remote Viewers Meetup Group. And to my shock and surprise, the first event I had, about 11 people showed up. And I just couldn't believe it. And only then that I found out that Al Putoff lives here, who has an office a couple of blocks away from my house. Paul Smith lived here at the time. There was a big interest in remote viewing here. So I was like, I couldn't believe it. 
So uh, I quickly got involved with a group out here called INAX, and they're kind of an all-things metaphysical interest group. And I began having the Austin Remote Viewers Meetup group in, in their facility every week for four years. And so people would come in and I would stand up there and talk about remote viewing and aid work targets. And I met some really great people. I met Paul Smith and then I went and met Hal Putoff and a lot of the things were starting to happen. And then I met a fella, uh, came in one time and he had a video that he wanted to show. And it was of himself doing a remote viewing session. He was being monitored by Lori Williams. Mm -hmm. His name was Jerry Harthcock, and he had been trained with Paul Smith. He trained with Lynn Buchanan, and Lori Williams, all of them. And he played this video. This was in 2011. And I was so thrilled that somebody had done that because I needed that so badly, you know, that I immediately got in touch with him right after that, right at the same meeting. And he, he hired me to do some remote viewing for him. And he videotaped me, the sessions. And he sent me the, the DVD of the session and I watched myself remote viewing. And it blew my mind. It, it completely changed the entire experience for me was to watch myself remote view or to watch other people remote view because it was this missing link that I had to work 10 years to get to. Because depending on somebody's learning style, for me, I really learned by watching somebody do something that they're really mm. good at, you know? So when it comes to remote viewing, there's so many things that are happening that go so fast that you could miss it all. But I study people and that's how I learn. So that was the missing link that came in. So then I started videotaping all of my sessions and putting them up on YouTube for free because nobody else was. And so I had full sessions. I mean, start to a stage six clay model session, unedited, no editing at all. I would not do any editing. And I had people who would say, can you cut that down? And it's like an hour and 20 minutes of remote viewing. It's like watching paint dry. And I said, absolutely not, because this is exactly what happened. And for those who understand what I'm saying, they'll get out of that video what my intention is for them to get out of it which is i wish i had that 10 years ago you now know? when you recorded it start to finish did you yeah. literally do one session all six stages all of them yeah all yeah, at once yeah the whole wow. thing start to finish yeah don't some people kind of do a stage and then stop and then come back to it or is it normal to go through all six stages at once it just depends on there's a lot of factors involved. It depends on how much mental energy they have, distractions they might have. It just depends. You know, remote viewing is a very in-the-moment experience. So my intention going into those videos was to get that full thing and put it out there because nobody else was. Before that, you couldn't find a full 
hour and a half session with all those stages online, unedited, anywhere. That was and the first are, time. And these are still on your YouTube channel? They're, right now? they're all still up there, yeah. And, and I, by the yeah. way, it'll be in the link, so you don't have to... Yeah, yeah. You got to go back, you know, because I got you know, 11 years. I got over 400 videos out. Mm-hmm. Going back about 11 years. In the early, early days of doing them, yeah, they were all... They were all those full sessions. And at the time, I was transitioning from the Ed Dames technical remote viewing protocol. And then when I moved out here, I started hanging out. I wanted to get more into the pure Ingo Swan CRV element, mm-hmm. which is what is really prevalent here. Because Paul Smith and, you know, Hal Putoff have a big influence here. So I put myself around those people and began to kind of absorb what they were doing and i was reading over you know reading ingo's books and reading everything i could and really getting the idea of what he was trying to do what he was trying to convey as best that i could because ingo was coming at it from not from a military standpoint so he didn't talk like a military guy you know i didn't like the military way of like the dames thing you're learning how to speak in a military frame of mind with a lot of these things, optimum trajectories and blah, blah, blah. And things that I don't say, mm-hmm. I don't talk that way. So it was stopping me from having the kind of experience that I wanted. But so when I started to learn more about what Ingo was about, he was all natural. It was a very natural process. So we created the CRV thing as a back engineering of the natural process. And I like that a lot. I really like that. But then I got to the point where, well, let's see here. Ingo is teaching how Ingo remote viewers. And that's just Ingo. So now I have to take Ingo and I need to throw him in the fireplace with Ed Danes. Because my philosophy became, first you learn how to remote view, and then you spend the rest of your life learning how you remote view Mm -hmm. and everyone is going to be different so there's no one thing fits all it doesn't work that way and it doesn't work that way for anyone who's really going to continue on in their exploration of it if you just want to learn a protocol and try to draw a ufo and get some pats on your back and woo woo for me then any structure will do you can do that but that wasn't my intention. I got to the point where I began to look at remote viewing very, very differently, very differently from what I was being taught, very differently from what people were saying. And I began to kind of put it into categories of what people's interests are and why they would pursue this thing. So I had over here what I call the data miner group. And then over here, I call the explorer group. The explorer group is very, very small. The data miner group is very, very big. And the data miner is the person who wants to produce data for their taskmaster, for their monitor or whatever. And it's all about producing that data for someone 
and hopefully you do good for them and they'll say you did a good job boy good boy you know yeah people pleasers yeah and you want to hit that target and you want to get that cheery everybody cheers for you and then you have the the explorer and the explorer doesn't care about any of that i don't care about any of that stuff i don't care about the target i don't care about the tasker i don't care about the structure i care about the exploration of it i care about the experience of it and that's the only thing that drives me so at that point the teacher student aspect became irrelevant to me because i became convinced there is no human being who's going to be the kind of teacher that i require that the only teacher is the process itself the process is the only teacher and i'm not talking about a structure I'm talking about the process of acquiring a range of time and space and whatever state it exists in and how we are able to translate that, decode it, move it through the parts of our brain that send it hopefully to and through the threshold of our awareness and above that so that we start to become aware that there is something happening. And then we go through the process of trying to describe it explain it and experiencing it that's a whole nother ball game so my little bracket here of explorer became very very few very very few of us you know and that's what's kept me going all these years because it's it's never ending you know the pursuit is never ending not the the target database the target database is somebody else's thing you know mm -hmm. the pursuit is never ending because it's way bigger than all that stuff you know it's bigger than the target the target is meaningless man and i began saying that in my explorations and i started to notice that people were understanding me less and less they just didn't know what the hell i was talking about you know and i was like having to deal with that and i finally came to the realization that the more confused people are by what i'm saying the closer i'm getting to where I want to go because the explorer goes way out there you know and looks back every once in a while maybe there's somebody trailing behind you back there but the rest of them are way back there and they don't know what the hell you're talking about man you know what I mean and so I started getting quite a bit of that and so I had to deal with that do I want to please people by putting out things that are going to make them happy no I don't care about any of that you know, I don't care about making people happy with my remote viewing. I only care about the pursuit of the process itself. The exploration is the only thing that matters to me, you know. Now, part of this exploration, I'm assuming you're still learning things that are applicable to the rest of humanity. They just might work more or less better for particular individuals once they discover their own process. But for instance, some of the science that you're looking at applies to everybody, right? If you're asking if it applies to everyone's brain, my answer is yes, it does. Anybody that has a functioning brain has these built-in mechanisms. But just like anything else, certain people are going to 
go further with it. I have hands and feet. I can go dribble a basketball, but I'm not going to be a Michael Jordan. You know what I mean? The same thing applies in, in remote viewing. You know, just because I have hands and feet doesn't mean I'm going to do that. But as far as people's capacity to do it, I am of the opinion it is natural, built into the hardware of our brains and our autonomic systems. And just some people are going to be more interested in it than others. Yeah. Now, when you talk about exploring or exploration, what do you mean? I mean the exploration of how an actual remote viewing works, what is taking place inside of the brain and the autonomic nervous system of an individual when an actual remote viewing is taking place. The processes, what mental processes are taking place. That's what I'm talking about. So like, I'll give you an example of of how the whole thing switched for me. And I became uh, obsessively moving in this direction. About 10 years ago, I'm working a target and I'm videotaping it. This is going to be one of the ones I'm going to put up on YouTube. And I get through the session and I go and I look at the feedback. And the feedback is an intelligence building in the United Kingdom that's shaped like a donut. It's this round building. Like a toroid or something. Yeah, it looks like a donut. You know, the building does. Okay. Hmm. And I look at my session and I had the shape of the building, but it was a shape over here, a shape over there. And I'm looking at it and I'm trying to decipher what that all meant. And it reminded me of something that I read in one of Ingo Swan's books. And it was something that he called lack of fusion, which I thought was a perfect term, lack of fusion. That's when you get elements of the location, but they aren't fused together properly. There's a piece over here, there's a piece over there, and they're not fit together in the way that they are in reality. And so I looked at it, what I had done, and it was a perfect example for a lack of fusion. I had all the elements of that round donut-shaped building, but they were not placed together correctly. And I was so excited by that because something that I had read from from Ingo, I had experienced it live, live on camera, and I captured it on camera, you see? So it wasn't some small little thing I read in a book that was completely obscure, Mm -hmm. you know? Anybody who read that book, I may be the only one who say, let's have a five-hour-long conversation about lack of fusion. They'd say, oh, yeah, did he mention that in that book? might not mean much to them, but it meant everything to me. I captured that live on camera, and I put it up so other people could see it. So when I did that, that's when the phenomena and the process then became the obsession. I want to capture all of these things on camera live as they're happening. 
and I'm going to capture them and I'm going to study them, you know, and that's where that whole ball started turning. So then the process became everything for me. It's a threshold of awareness became an obsession. The emotional processes that are taking place below the threshold of awareness, all the things that the quote unquote target or the input has to go through to get to the threshold of awareness. If it even does, it may be obliterated somewhere down there and it never even makes it up there. You know, what does that feel like? What does the threshold of awareness feel like? Can I bring my awareness to that? You know, it became a process of what's called introception. I'm bringing my awareness inside of my body now. Introception could be, okay, bring your awareness to your left big thumb and feel your heart, feel the pulse in your left thumb. And when you can do that, that's called introception. But I was using introception to go into my brain because I wanted to find the parts of my brain that were becoming stimulated by the quote-unquote target. So the target took on a completely different meaning for me, and it was only being used as a stimulus to stimulate those parts of my brain that I was working vigorously to become aware of, of when they became stimulated. Very intense interoception. And then, most importantly, capturing it on video so that it's documented. And then I put a video out and I'm talking about it as opposed to having to try to write it into a book or something like that, you know, which, you know, I'm dyslexic. I don't like writing. I don't even like reading, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to do that. But what I can do is I can capture it on video. So that way you're not hearing me talk about it. You can watch it as it happened. That's the most important part, you know. And I've captured some, in my opinion, some pretty freaking amazing things on video. Like I say, it's never ending. It's never ending. Now, as you're doing this interception, what parts of the brain are focused on this activity, in your opinion? In my opinion, based on the experiences that I have, have had and continue to have, the part that is initially active is in the brainstem. How I set it up was I'll get a target online database. I'm totally blind to the target. I don't care what the target is. I get the reference ID. I'll set it up on my board right here. My intention is to become aware of any kind of stimulations or processes that are happening in any part of my brain when I feel there's something actually happening, actually happening. And then I'm going to do my best to follow that to the part of my brain that is being stimulated. And in my opinion, the parts of the brain that I found are in the brainstem, the cerebral peduncles region of the brainstem, the hippocampus, the hippocampal region. The part that I'm really obsessed with is the dentate gyrus and the CA 
one through four regions and what they do. Because what I would do is I would do these experiments and I've done so many of them. Most of the videos that I have up on YouTube for free, most of them are this research. People just have to go back in time a bit, you know. There's hundreds of them. And I would do the session, usually a quick thing. Again, I'm not interested in solving the mysteries, you know. All I want is the stimulation. Try to focus on the part of my brain that I'm aware of that is being stimulated. And then I would go and I would research that part of the brain. And then I would find those regions. That's how I found the cerebral peduncle region. That's how I found the dentate gyrus part of the brain by feeling it and then going and researching those parts of my brain and what they do. And then when I would read what they do, I'd fall off my chair because it was what I was looking for. Meaning this, I have my own terms for a lot of remote viewing experiences. So I was exploring something that I termed dimensional sensations, meaning I was having an experience of a dimensionality. And I was doing my best to describe it, but there was a, a dimensionality that was being presented that my brain was producing. What do you mean by dimensionality? A, a spatial recognition, levels of density or vastness. They would have dimensionality to them and it would be a sensation. So when I would have the experience and I would go and research that part of my brain that I felt was being stimulated, that's how I found the cerebral peduncle region that connects to the brainstem. And as I'm reading through what that area of the brain does, it's a part of the brain that is responsible for an experience that people have called proprioception. And proprioception is the brain's ability to produce a balanced dimensional awareness of the environment that they're in. And in the description of it, they call this area of the brain where the sixth sense is. And I just, I almost fell off my chair because I found it, but I found it through exploring my own brain, that region of my brain. Now, how did you perceive it was that region of your brain without looking at a diagram of the brain? Where did that knowing come from? Introception. So I'm focused intensely on where a stimulation is taking place in my brain. And it's not up here. It's not happening over here. It's happening down here. It's down in the base of my brain and brainstem. Now, how do you perceive that? Do you perceive that as like a physical feeling? Do you perceive that as an image? Do you perceive that as what sense or sensation do you perceive that specific area of the brain? Other than just saying a sensation. Yeah. Um, Sorry. I don't mean to... I don't mean yeah, to pin you down. I'm just trying really, to... There's no other way to really describe it other than there's a sensation in that part of my brain. I feel activity there. 
Mm-hmm. And be- because what I want to do going into that experience, my intense focus is to experience when that part of my brain is being stimulated. I want to go to that part of my brain that's being stimulated by that quote unquote target. Mm-hmm. And it's not the whole brain. It's not all over here. It's not all over there. I'm looking for the specific area that is being stimulated by that range of time and space that I'm completely blind to. So my intense focus is specific to look for what part of my brain is being stimulated by that. Not emotionally, not intellectually. I'm talking the base stimulation because that target now is a stimulus and it's stimulating a part of my brain from the beginning. I'm not talking later on when it goes through all the memory systems and it's attached now to memories and it's concepts and emotions and all this other stuff that's going on. That's all up here. I didn't want to go. I'm not just set up there. I want to go to where, where we first initially make that initial contact. I call it the selector mechanism. So it's a feeling sensation. You just have like a knowing. A sensation that there's activity in that part of my brain. Okay. Specific. Okay. Let, me, let me give you an, an example here. I'll grab the, the reference ID. I'm blind to it. I go to the board. I'm waiting for a stimulation. When it happens, I begin to describe it. And I do my best to describe it. If after a few minutes of experiencing that, it has the qualities that I know from my experience that, yeah, that's real. Because an actual remote viewing, there's quality, they have a quality to it. Then I'll say, okay, this is it, this is real. Where in my brain is this coming from? Backtrack this into my brain. And that's where I've been able to find those areas, you know? Backtracking the stimulation to where it's coming from. Now, you started talking before I cut you off. You started talking about the selector mechanism. Say more. I theorized that in order to do a quote unquote remote viewing, there must be a series of mechanisms. And that whatever state the quote-unquote target exists in, somehow our brain is able to acquire it. And what are those mechanisms? So I theorized that there must be a selector mechanism and there must be an attractor mechanism. Because we're dealing with ranges of time and space in whatever state they exist in or a quote unquote target. But let's say the target is the assassination of JFK. You gotta go back in time to get to that. 
a bazillion, gazillion things have happened since mm -hmm. time began, right? But somehow you're able to go and describe a dude getting shot in the head. That's a very specific range of time and space. That's not random. That's right. very specific. So I theorize that there must be a part of the brain that is able to select the specific range of time and space. And I call that the selector mechanism. And then once that is acquired, and the other part of the, of the brain, I theorized there was a selector mechanism and an attractor mechanism. In my research, post doing that into my brain and researching the part of the brain in the hippocampal formation called the dentate gyrus, that in that part of our brain, we process, that part of the brain is responsible for processing novel environments. And when I read that, after finding that part of my brain through my own remote viewing, again, fell off my chair. Because that's a great definition for remote viewing. What is remote viewing? It's the processing of novel environments. Mm -hmm. It's a great definition for it. But the other thing that I was reading in my research about that part of the brain is that they have what they term attractor dynamics in that part of the brain that pull that quote unquote information through those neurons into what they call the CA1, 2, 3, and 4 regions of the brain, where they begin to recognize patterns and go and select memories, where it begins to go through a process of memory recognition, right? And so that's the attractor mechanism where you have a selector mechanism that can select that range of time and space in whatever state it exists in, which I theorize is a state of gravitational radiation. And then that begins to move through the, the base parts of the brainstem, processing that, decoding it, retranslating it, it's pulled up into other parts of the brain, like the dentate gyrus, where we begin to process the environment. And in that part of the brain, as it's going through those neurons and mossy fibers, we begin to process that information. And we do it with memory recognition. We begin to recognize the patterns. The problem is in that part of the brain, though, in, in regards to remote viewing, is that once it gets into that part of the brain, a little more advanced parts of the brain, and it begins to have access to our already acquired knowledge base and memories, that's where it can get lumped in to what is typically considered in remote viewing an analytical overlay, mm -hmm. which is a big term that I've taken and I've thrown into the fireplace. Because I always heard the term analytical overlay with a very generic definition of it. 
but nobody ever tells you anything about it. Nobody knows anything about it. I'm sorry. They just don't know anything about it. So actually what that means other than, ah, man, it reminded you of something and you solved it with a memory. It's, it's a tall building. It's got to be the Eiffel Tower or whatever, blah, 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 blah. But that was never good enough for me. That's never good enough for me. I want to know what happened. So as the input is moving into the dente gyrus part of the brain and moving specifically into the CA3 region where it begins to formulate, that's where the pattern separation and pattern completion processing really begins in the brain. And AOL, I don't call it AOL anymore. I call it pattern completion. Our brain has completed a pattern. It's taken elements of a pattern and completed it. Mm -hmm. Whereas pattern separation, which also takes place in the dentate gyrus, is where the patterns are coming in, but they do not get complete. They're able to continue on through the neurons and you can begin to process that without coming to any kind of hard conclusion. As long as those patterns don't complete, the, an actual remote viewing can continue on. Is this also why this lack of fusion thing can sometimes happen? Yeah. Yeah. Lack of fusion, absolutely. Where you have patterns that are coming in of, of what can be considered shape, form, recognition. And, but you don't know what to do with them. You, you put them down there, but you don't know what to do with them. It's like you may have a neural net here and a neural net here, and the pieces are going through those neural nets and they're connecting into the other neural nets, but they're not actually coming together. <laughs> you know, they're kind of moving out this way. And, and that's probably how something like that could happen, you know? Okay, so you're talking about CA3. You're also talking about the dentite gyrus, mm -hmm. right? I'm assuming gyrus has something to do with like gyroscope, like same root word, things like that in terms of orientation. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and you're talking about pattern completion, pattern separation. How do those two interact or they don't interact? Well, they, they do. In, in a remote viewing experience, they're basically the gatekeeper. We're really down into the gatekeeper region. In fact, I just thought of that just now, and I'm going to write that down. <laughs> write that down. Gatekeeper. See, it just never ends, you know. Where if the individual is attempting to do a remote viewing and the selector mechanism, or again, these are my terms, acquires the range of time and space. It begins moving its way through the brain, stimulating parts of the brain, stimulating patterns, all below the threshold of, of the individual's awareness. I'm not aware of it. This is pre-awareness processing. Right. It's like breathing. You don't think about it. It just Exactly. It's autonomic. It's in the yeah. autonomic system. So they're not even aware of it. As the input then begins to stimulate into the base parts of the brain, 
and gets into an area like in the hippocampal formation, in the hippocampus region, again, it's the gatekeeper, where that quote-unquote target information is either going to be processed in a way that can make it to the threshold of your awareness, or it isn't. It may not even make it. It could just die out. Or in the individuals who is attempting to do the remote viewing, the last thing you want to do is say, I'm not getting anything. Nothing's coming and I'm not getting anything here. I better just come back later. Typically, you'll just start making something up, <laughs> you know, because you, you don't want to not do something. You know, there, again, there's a lot of mental processes taking place. You know, there's all kinds of barriers in the mind that this thing has to get through before anything ends up on a piece of paper. Because something to consider is that, in my opinion, the acquisition by the selector mechanism, the acquisition of that range of time and space is at the speed of light. That's how fast we acquire it. Now, from that, from that flash. Now, is it at the speed of light, right? Because if you're dealing with like a non-local system, it would be instantaneous, right? It would be faster, like quantum communication, quantum entanglement. Again, yeah. I'm just speculating, but, well, I guess it moves through the brain at the speed of light is what you're saying. The state that it exists in. I feel confident to say that it's moving at the speed of light. It's in a state of radiation that I'm comfortable saying that it, as a default, that it would move at the speed of light. And that the selector mechanism, its ability to acquire that would happen at the speed of light mm -hmm. as a generic term. I'm comfortable to say that that it would be at that speed or a speed of that nature. Meaning it's not a turtle, you know, you don't have a big chunk of rock falling on your head, you know. Right. It's like almost that. like you're perceiving photons in some exactly. photons are traveling, so, something like yeah. that. Radiation, like the sun is radiation and it's moving at the speed of light. And so the acquisition of it is instantaneous like that. And it's, instantaneous and it's hitting in the part of the, of the brain that is autonomic where autonomic functions happen just like breathing and all that kind of stuff we don't think about it it just happens so the time that it takes from the acquisition and for the state of the input to begin moving through the neurons by the time it gets to the, above the threshold of awareness and you're trying your best to describe it, it's a long time. It's a very long time. And a lot has taken place. Where the viewer is just thinking, hey, I just wrote down the target reference ID and tried to make an ideogram. Yeah, well, you acquired the input a million years ago. The cerebral peduncle connected into the brainstem is one of the closest areas, in my opinion, to the actual selector mechanism. Now, in the peduncle area is where we begin to experience what is called proprioception. So we're beginning to experience the dimensional sensations of the quote-unquote target. So that's not the selector area. 
I am inclined to look more towards the medulla oblongata as probably closer to where they were in the brain stem that an actual selector mechanism may exist. Because I am of the opinion that our ability to do these things is most likely in the most primitive part of our brain, not the newest part of the brain, mm-hmm. in the most primitive part of the brain, because in my opinion, it is a survival mechanism of the highest order. And so I'm of the opinion that that is in the oldest part of our brain, you know, the very primitive part of our brain that has the ability of situational awareness and the most primal need to survive would have that as a survival mechanism. You know what I mean? Of the highest order, of the highest order. Okay, so the CA3 is where the attractor mechanism is. That's where pattern completion occurs. And the dentate gyrus, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. From there, what happens to the signal? From there, because we're moving now from base stimulus, attempting to decode the state that the range of time and space exists in. Like here, let me give you an example. JFK was shot in the head in 1963. So, okay, 1963, Dallas, that street, that event, that bullet, it exists exists in time and space, but in what state does it exist in? If you go walking over onto that street in Dallas right now, you don't see JFK driving past you. So it exists, but it exists in some state. And whatever state that exists, and again, I told you what my theory about it is, but we have the ability to begin the decoding process, decoding and recoding of that. So by the time it gets into the dentate gyrus and into the CA3 region, which is a a set of neurons, and it's getting into where we begin to store memory, create memory, all ranges of memory, episodic memory, spatial memory. We're now getting into the part of our brain where we're beginning to take those patterns and how we can recognize them. The brain begins to process these patterns and begins to formulate a structure of some sort that we can recognize. The brain will say, I recognize that pattern. It reminds me of this. It reminds me of that. I get a pattern for that. Oh, you know what? Why don't we just complete the whole thing and say it's this? Our brains are really good at that. Really good at that. The pattern separation element where it takes a lot more discipline to maintain the pattern separation in an attempt to comprehend what you're now experiencing. Because it's easy to go through the completion part. I know what the target is. It's, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's easy, man. 
But the, the discipline is to maintain a pattern separation so that those patterns can now begin to go in, into the midbrain, into the higher echelons of realms of the brain that process memories and concepts and structure recognition at a higher level that is mostly based on our memory. I know what a building looks like. I know what a street looks like. I know what a car looks like. I've driven cars. I've been on planes. I've been around people. So I have a pretty decent understanding of what those things are. So by the time it gets from the brainstem into those regions, a lot has taken place. It's had to go through parts of the brain that deal with emotions, all kinds of barriers, belief barriers, things that are our own misconceptions of things. It's having to deal with a lot. That initial signal is just typically getting the out of it by the time it makes it up to the threshold of our awareness where we actually begin describing something real as opposed to something that is not real you know meaning that if it doesn't make it through pattern completion and all we're doing is writing and drawing that portion of it very little remote viewing has taken place very little but if through discipline it stays within the realm of the pattern separation, then we can move into elements of our memories and concepts that can keep it separate and keep it expansive. You know what I mean? So that element became a big part of my interest as well. So I, I wanted to know how that happens and how that takes place. So through my exploration of what happens by the time that signal gets to the threshold of my awareness by process of interoception. And in my opinion, our awareness is a electromagnetic sphere in our brain. And so when, as those, the parts of our brain that are processing all that information, by the time it gets into our awareness, it has to go through an electromagnetic barrier. And again, another survival mechanism, because if we didn't have that, we would have a bazillion things, our heads would explode, you know, every thought, everything would be blasting in our minds all the time. So we have a survival mechanism of a threshold of awareness that keeps us from going crazy, that we can focus on one thing instead of everything that our brain can process all at the same time, uncontained. Yeah, we'd have we, to we, think we about keeping our heart beating. We'd have to think about breathing. We'd have to think about, we'd have to do all sorts of things. Yeah, not just that, but all of yeah. our memories would be flashing at the same time. Everything from the environment would be coming through and processing all at the same time. People's emotions, everything the brain would be operating uncontained all the time. You'd go crazy. You, you would probably have a heart attack and die if we didn't have a, a threshold for our, our awareness, a type of a governor that allows us to block all of that out and focus on one thing, you know. And luckily we have that. Luckily we have that. So I became really fascinated with that part of my brain. 
And so I began to study it through the process of remote viewing. So I would get a target and I would have a target reference ID, of course, blind to all the targets. And I would just be looking for the threshold of my awareness only. And when a stimulus came above it, meaning I became slightly aware of something, I would begin to document it, write it down. And then I noticed that it tend to go this way and move in this kind of undulating fashion. Something would come above the threshold and then it would go below the threshold. And come like, above. A, like a sine wave, like an electromagnetic yep. signal. Exactly, right? man. Exactly. And so in my pursuit of that, that's how it would happen. It would happen like that all the time. And I document all these videos, man. I got all these videos of the stuff on my YouTube and my exploration of this. Have you so ever I'm, measured your brainwave activity while you were doing it? Like how many hertz? I've wanted to. I put it out there many times to do that. But the closest that I came was my friend Dustin Newcomb. He bought me a session at some place here in Austin that put up some electrodes on your head and they would do some stuff. So he bought a couple sessions for me and we went there and I got set up with those things and I worked at Target with those things. And it's all recorded. The video is up on, on YouTube, you know, but it really doesn't tell you much. It doesn't tell you much. Um, tell you what frequency it was? I can't Your remember. Brain nah, I can't remember. You, 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 I'd have to go back and watch the video. But it, it so wasn't wasn't really. So I've asked much. this question to at least two different remote viewers. So when I asked Paul Smith, he said that SRI did work on it and said your brainwave state has nothing to do with remote viewing. But David Morehouse says that eight hertz alpha wave is the ideal state, and he looked at different types of music that would you know, have a harmonic at that at level. Eight? And I think at, at eight, eight, hertz? eight hertz, eight hertz, which I keep, I'm throwing a bunch of stuff at you right now, which is also very close to the Schumann yeah. resonance. Right? Well, seven, seven, seven point eight three. Yeah. 7.83. I listened to that range. Eight hertz. I don't know. That might, I don't know about that one. So, but Hey, man, if that's what works for him, who am I to say? It doesn't work for him. But well, it's close to the alpha wave, right? It's it's close, but it, it kind of gets into the realm, I think, of like a, an earthquake, where it doesn't <laughs> take a large percentage to make a big difference. So yeah, if if that's what works for him, I do use uh, a Schumann resonance when I do my work, and I find that it does help me. It helps to just keep my mind focused. With that said, I've done plenty of remote viewing with none of that and had great and did fine. So it just becomes a, a preference of what you want to do. I've done work with a uh, neurophone, Patrick Flanagan's neurophone, um, with pink noise, a pink noise generator, all different types of hemisyncs and all that. I've, I've explored and experimented with, with a lot of that stuff. Ultimately, you don't need an, any of it, in my opinion. But I do find that the 7.83, is it? I think so. Uh, uh, apparently, it's increasing. More. Apparently, it's increasing. So I can't verify that. But Yeah, I don't know. But I did find, like I was saying, 
that as far as the threshold of awareness goes, that it would go up and above. It would go like this, move in a pattern like that. I'd become aware of something and then, whoa, 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 where did it go? Oh, oh, there it is again. Oh, whoa, 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 where'd it go? So I wanted to figure out a way that I could follow it. That if it was dipping below the threshold of my awareness, how do I follow it down there? How do you do that? And it wasn't an intellectual thing. It, it was a, a brain process thing. Because we are blessed with the ability to have one of the greatest human experiences possible, which is the, the experience of curiosity. That the curiosity element, when my curiosity was stimulated, that my curiosity could follow that below the threshold of awareness. So I made a bunch of videos back years ago called Curiosity Preaches the Threshold, meaning that you, you could ride curiosity through the threshold of awareness and go and find what you're curious about and begin to experience and explore and, and describe what has triggered your curiosity. And so that was really cool. And curiosity breach, I think I called it the curiosity breaches the threshold. And so curiosity became a very big part of my overall explanation of how remote viewing works, because without it, you don't know what's happening. And again, it became a, an issue for me because the way I was initially taught by Ed Danes was that you, remote viewing is not an experience. All you're doing is writing down, you know, you're a data miner. You know, they can't blame them. They're military guys. They just take orders, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's good for him. It's not good for me. So curiosity became a big part of it. A big part of remote viewing is the individual's ability to recognize when a stimulus below the threshold of their awareness triggers their curiosity. And now they're curious about something that they don't know what it is. You're working a blind target. You don't know what the target is. But if your curiosity is stimulated, you can put your hat on that you're probably onto something. There's probably something real happening. You're really accessing that range of time and space. You know? And so that became a big part of my philosophy of remote viewing, which, again, none, nobody talked about any of this stuff. You know? Now, you mentioned the signal goes through or has to be processed through an electromagnetic layer. Mm -hmm. Before it hits that layer, what fields is it interacting with or is it's the information going, interacting with? It's, in my opinion, you're going through a lot of mental processes. It's going through a barrage of mental processes of what you think the target could be, how many targets have you done? How many targets have you done that have been water-based targets? How many have been people-based? How many have been structures? How many outer space targets? What are the odds that the next one is gonna be a water target? <clears throat> how many targets have I done? Gee, what if it's not that? I don't know if I can do this. Oh, wait a minute, I think it might be that. I think it might be a people target. I mean, it's crazy town. It's crazy, you know, 
start to get through a barrage of mental processes. It's like go, walking through an insane asylum, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and every one of those insane people are yelling at it. Yeah, you know, you know, it's me. Look at me. Look at me. It's got to get through that. You know. Now, you mentioned something about gravity and mm -hmm. how gravity is related to some of this, the, the force of gravity. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Once I made the conclusion that the quote-unquote target, or what is commonly referred to as a target, I had to start looking at all these words because the, the words you use will make it or break it. Meaning that if it's categorized as a target, what is the target? What is that? What does that even mean? There's all kinds of things that, that target fits into all kinds of definitions. Well, how does that re relate to remote viewing? I started to think that that was a terrible word and actually did a disservice to the viewer because it has too many connotations. It means too many things for someone to say, well, oh, I want to get on target. What's the target? You know? Yeah, it forces focus and it discourages exploration because you take the Pat Price example when he was given a set of coordinates, which was meant to be some cabin, but instead he explored that area as a cabin in West Virginia. And it turned out that he found a classified NSA site that, you know, any secret when you're remote viewing kind of shines out. It's very energetic because of the energy that you're putting into it to keep the secret. So he uh, found, yeah, yes. So just to complete the story, he found names of files like cue ball and I don't remember the exact, but they were all pool related. And the CIA didn't even know about it, but the CIA found out that from the NSA that the site exists and it freaked them the F out. Yeah. But you know, you know what's interesting to me about that Pat Price story is if it would have been any other viewer, would they have gotten that? Why would Pat Price be attracted to something like that? Because he was a police officer. No, detective, yeah. He was a detective. So his brain is hardwired through his years as a detective to go and find that kind of stuff. Whereas had it been somebody else, they may not have been interested in that. They may have not have even contemplated going there even below the threshold of their awareness. So it's interesting to me that Pat would be drawn to that because his mind was trained to go and find what's going on in a location. You know what I'm saying? You know, more than somebody who had not had all of his experience. So going back to gravity, sorry. And as far as the gravity is concerned, I began to contemplate, again, the notion that the words that were used, commonly used in, re in regards to remote viewing, did not work for me. And they didn't tell me anything. They didn't give me any kind of an understanding of what was going on. Target being one of those words. I thought it's just a terrible word. So then I started thinking, what actually is it? Well, it is a range of time and space. That's a good definition for what it is. It is a range of time and it's a range of space. 
that exists in an as of yet unknown state. But what state could it possibly exist in that we would have access to it? And I started to contemplate that it, it probably exists in some state of radiation that we have physical access to. And if that's the case, then there's some element there of mobility where we can move along it. And so I started to think about gravitational radiation or gravitational waves. And that if it existed within that, then that may be how we have the ability to select a range of time and space. That it would be, quote unquote, as a generic term, a mobile state. Something that is acquirable or attractable. That we could somehow grab it out of everything. You know? And so I started to contemplate whether that might be the state that it, it exists in. And I could be wrong, and I'm probably wrong, but that's my hypothesis at this point. Because so many strange things happen. Let, let me give an example. And this kind of goes to the Pat Price story as well. I was working a target and doing the whole thing and going through this whole rigmarole of all this information and what has taken place at this location and there's this kind of big spherical kind of ball thing and there's this kind of trolley that goes into the center of it it's pretty weird people get on this trolley and they're going inside this thing and it's freaking weird but i go through and i describe it all and when i get the feedback photo for it the target was I think it was like a, the Ep, Epcot. Epcot Center. Yeah. I think I think it was the big sphere that was in the the World's Fair. It was built for the World's Fair in 1967, but as they were restoring it in 1977, it caught fire and it burned down. So the target was it when it was burning down, and at the time it was completely dilapidated the trolley thing it was all it was just a big pile of garbage you know and it went up in flames so that was the target was the destruction of this thing right but that's not what i described i described it when it was functioning in 1967 where the trolley was active and there were people on there and they were excited and they were you take the trolley into the center of this thing and you go inside there and blah 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 so I captured another very interesting thing, which was what can be termed a temporal attractor, meaning oh. that the target that I was being asked to describe, that's not that interesting. But if you go back 10 years, when it was there, it was far more interesting over here. I'm interested in that. You know? I'm not interested in burning down in 77, but back in 67, that was cool, man. I'm all over that. So I was able to capture that on video, and it's not in the videos up there. 
of what can be termed a temporal attractor, that I was attracted to a different range of time in the same space. And I thought that was really, really cool. So like with the Pat Price example, I think he would fall into that too. With a brain like Pat Price as a seasoned detective, he's probably going to be more interested in finding those files, man. What's in those files? What do you got hidden over there, pal? You know, it's a highly intuitive profession. Like you have to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he said he did. You know, so it doesn't surprise me that he would be attracted to that, you know, where somebody else may just describe the location at that coordinate, you know. So those interesting things happen. But like I say, the temporal attraction element, again, my process goes, how would that happen? Is it on some kind of gravitational wave? Is that how we're able to move along it? Or maybe it's a signal, right? Some sort of a signal from that period in time, space-time. How? What state does it exist in? Where, Where does that exist? That's where it gets into the unknown. So that's my theory of it. That's my theory. I'm not saying it is the case, but for me, it feels more along the lines I'm drawn to look in that direction than some of the other more, you know, shallow descriptions of what some people have said remote viewing is. You know, I've heard people say, oh, I know, we know how it works. It's, you know, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's ridiculous. You know, that's, that's like kindergarten level, you know, pull out your crayons and let me, this is an A. I don't think so. You know, I don't, I don't think so. And besides, I'll let the process tell me how it works. I don't need anybody to tell me how it works. You know, the process will tell me how, how it works. You know, because I know that's right. All right, my friend. I think this is the perfect time to end the episode. Thank you very much for coming on. And I look forward to speaking with you in the next one. Thanks, man. Hopefully, I didn't bore your subscribers with all this no no has anyone else asked you some of the questions that i asked you in my comments people ask for my videos but typically they they don't get that far so i do appreciate your inquisitive nature i I appreciate your ability to listen even to some potentially new concepts and and be able to go with that so I, i appreciate your interviewing style because of you that's why the audience will love it just because it People don't push on these things, right? In the sense, not push in a bad way, but usually when you explain these concepts to the average interviewer, it's just going to go over their heads, right? Yeah, yeah. And trying to tease out and just understand and not, again, I hope I didn't seem too pushy from that standpoint. I'm just trying to understand because the problem with modern human society right now is that there is a stigma to being an expert and then being wrong. And I think a far better approach is just to, I mean, it's why archaeology has been consistently way off because they've established this truth and people's reputations are built and made on this truth. And they're not willing to say, look, we're 90% sure this is the case, but we could be wrong here. They don't, 
the way that modern academia works is there's no room for doubt. And that's the whole point of professors having tenure is that it allows them to take these, but society has become so stratified in such a way that we have to go to the internet and to having these conversations to even test alternative ideas, right? Could it be gravity? Sure. Might it be some other field that we don't even know exists yet? Absolutely. But being able to just ask the questions and be inquisitive about these things is something that we've kind of lost as at least in polite society, polite formal society, institutionally, we've lost it. And I think these things do happen and are questioned institutionally, but they're, those tend to be in classified programs. So anyway, I think you've done my audience a service and I appreciate your time. I appreciate that. Thank you. If you enjoyed this video, please click on like, subscribe, and the notification button so that you're alerted anytime I post something new.